This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. Steve English, Adam Wheeler and Neil Morrison on this week's show. Neil, how's things for you? Things are going pretty well, Steve. It's about 16 degrees outside, lovely sunny day. I've been out on my bicycle. Yeah, things are looking pretty good. We're hearing a siren in the background. Is that for you, Neil, or is that for Adam Wheeler? Time will tell, Steve. Yes, if I suddenly disappear from this podcast 10 minutes in, uh, just assume that, uh, assume the worst, I say. And Ad, how about you? How's things? Yeah, good. Good, thanks, Steve. It's the end of January. So, uh, Supercross firmly underway. We've done the Dakar. Um, just impatient, really, to get some kind of confirmation of motorcycle racing. But, you know, reading or watching the daily news, it's not terribly bright or inspiring at the moment. So, uh, Let's see what happens. I really, I've probably said this before on the podcast, but I wouldn't want to be a race promoter at this this moment in time. Yeah, you were, you were writing about that actually just in this week's On Track Off Road or this month's On Track Off Road, Adam, just about the first round of the MXGP. Obviously, that's in Omen and the uh, first MotoGPs in Qatar, so next door neighbours. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder how... Dorna will make that work. Up until last week, I think the entry restrictions of Qatar were six days. Uh, so, for, you know, for people coming in from high-risk countries, and let's be honest, most countries are high-risk these days uh, or seem to be classified that way, um, it would mean arriving to the country and then holding up in a hotel for six days before you could then go onto the circuit. I would assume that Dorna would have some sort of policy with the, with the government or with the, with the federation to be able to skip that. But you don't know. Um, and then, you know, there was another update, I think, two days ago where Qatar was essentially locking down to all um, foreign travel. So it, it does throw big question marks, you know, over the, the start of the season with just two months to go. Yeah, Neil, of course, Adam's just after mentioning some of the danger zones that you could potentially have. Ireland, North and South, we're number one in the world, though. <laughs> Yeah, lucky lucky people we are, Steve. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's tough to see things being things being so bad back at home. Um, I mean, things aren't exactly great in Spain either. I must say, since I've come back, um, there's been a, a sharp rise in terms of um, yeah daily infection rates, and I think uh, recently the other day it was the highest number of deaths in one day in this in this third wave that they're calling it right now. So um, yeah, I think there's going to be maybe some stricter measures coming. Um, we're I think a little bit more open than you are, Steve, over here in, in Barcelona. We have restaurants open at lunchtime, for example. Um, we're not allowed to leave the city um, or the municipality, um, but a few things are open. You can go to the restaurant at lunchtime. You can go to the cinema. You can go to the swimming pool. Um, but I fear that that might, uh, that might change in the coming days or the coming weeks. Yeah, well, you could hear from... Neil there just how tough it can be for everyone so that's why it's always good to have a show where we're able to give everyone a little bit of a distraction and on this week's show we've actually got quite a few questions that came in from listeners to the pod of course you can tweet us at paddock pass pod and we'll try and get those questions answered and uh, what we're going to do for the format for this week's show is we're just going to have a discussion about some of the questions that came in and I had one of the first questions that came in was asking about Valentino Rossi is he a spent force should he retire or uh, is there any hope for Rossi fans? It's at this point, Steve, where I'll look around for my flat jacket or my Kevlar body armor and hat. Um, oof. 
is Rossi a spent force? Uh, I'm afraid to say I think he is. Um, I already thought a year ago that he wouldn't win another Grand Prix. And on paper, it's it's just signs of decline, really. I mean, 2020 was like his worst season, I think, in 10 years, you know, since he was on the Ducati. Uh, just one podium finish. Um, and it's been now three seasons since his last victory. I just think with the, the influx of, you know, five new winners coming in in 2020, that new energy, that new generation. I mean, Rossi's shown himself to be incredibly versatile uh, as well as flexible, open-minded to the demands of MotoGP. But uh, I mean, I don't know what you and Neil think, but I just, I look around the class and some of the energy that's coming in around him. I mean, I think he's now nine, it's going to be nine seasons with Yamaha in his second stint. I mean, Yes, he's got the refresh of a team and he's going to be working with Franco Morbidelli, who he's obviously very close to and, and rates highly because he's spoken glowingly about him a number of times. But I just I can't see it happening. Um, for the first time in his career, he's not in a factory team. I mean, you could argue, is there much difference? You know, Fabio Quartararo's progress has shown that. But uh, I do wonder whether 2021 will be a bit of a farewell tour. Yeah, and Neil, just what Adam's talking about there, about that decline we've seen for Rossi, we actually saw it when we did a Patreon-only special about our top 10 riders for the year. And between myself, yourself, Adam and David, none of us had Rossi in our top 10. Yeah, I don't think any of us had Rossi in our top 10s at the end of 2019 either. Um, it has been a couple of fallow years for him, for sure. Um, but, you know, I'm going to, play a bit of devil's advocate here and say that um, I don't think he is a spent force. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be a contrarian to what Adam has said. Um, I mean, yes, last season was was difficult and largely pretty bad. I mean, he finished 15th in the championship. That's well below par. Um, but I still think there were moments last year where Rossi was fighting, not just for podiums, but for, I mean, there was a race win there for the taking in Barcelona had he not made that mistake. And I know... Um, there have been a few of those mistakes creep in whenever an opportunity has presented itself to him to win a race in recent years. Um, but the fact that he was still there putting himself in that situation um, was quite impressive. And when you think of how he started uh, the 2020 season, that first race at Jerez, he was actually going so slow that he moved out of the way when he saw Mark Marquez coming through in that epic ride through the pack because he didn't want to he didn't want any controversy, you know, which says quite a lot, I think. Um, to then bounce back the week later with a, a podium, a slightly fortuitous podium with uh, a few people retiring ahead of him. Um, but his run of results after that wasn't desperate. I mean, he had a couple of fifth places. One of those fifths was in Austria. Um, and he just missed the podium in, uh, in San Marino at his home race. And then, you know, there were a couple of races where, okay, he retired or he crashed out um, three occasions but one of those, he was fighting for the race win. And then it's really difficult to judge after that because obviously he contracted COVID. Um, and when he made his comeback at the end of last year, I mean, all of the 2020 Yamahas were having a dire, dire time. So, um, yeah, I would say, you know, it's uh, we're talking about one of the, the all-time greats who still shows the hunger and the motivation to take his training incredibly seriously. Um, and on occasion has still performed as the best Yamaha rider. So I think he deserves another shot at it, another two years at it. Why not? Um, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say that there's a, a massive queue of riders being held up in Moto2, 
uh, due to Rossi remaining a MotoGP. So what's the harm in keeping him there? He's still capable of podiums, consistent finishes, um, technical expertise, bringing fans to the bringing fans to the circuit when hopefully they're allowed back in. Hopefully that'll be sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, let's see more I, of Rossi around. I think the main issue, Neil, is that you know you you identify him there as a legend, and we're used to talking about a, a rider who was prolific. I mean, now in the last three seasons, he's taken eight podiums, whereas in 2016 he was on the box ten times. I mean, yeah, you can point like a withering finger at Yamaha and say, you know, there's been technical issues. I mean, he's gone through at least three crew chiefs, I think maybe in the last five years. Um, so you know, it hasn't been plain sailing. It hasn't been a case of him having a super competitive motorcycle and uh, not really taking the opportunity. I mean, uh, instances like Mugello uh, qualifying on pole position and then, you know, the bike blowing up, I think was a, you know, a particularly wounding example of um, how sort of Rossi mania can suddenly deflate. I think your point about the fans is is, is really good. Um, I mean, still every circuit that we used to go to uh, was largely yellow, uh, 46 everywhere. I mean... I don't know. I just think maybe Valentino could be trying to get to 46 in terms of years before he calls it a day. I don't know. Whether, but I would disagree that he's perhaps um, you know, holding up a place. There are younger riders coming through. But, you know, maybe he's uh, like an aging superstar footballer, somebody who puts shirts, uh, you know, gets the shirts off the, off the shops, off shelves in, in the stores. And, and for that, he's going to be more, you know, touted around MotoGP than for his ability to win a championship. Uh, I I take your point on board, Ed, and, and there is a big part of me that doubts whether Rossi can win a race again. Um, uh, I think that that ship is probably sealed, to be honest. Um, but, I mean, we've got, what, three or four new guys coming up from Moto2 uh, into MotoGP in 2021. Um, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty young grid. Um, and I just think that um, until he starts until you start thinking, oh God, this is this is getting quite embarrassing. Um, I did have that fear at the first Hareth race where I thought this is really not working out and he can't be enjoying this and it's just, it's no fun for anyone. Um, but how he reacted to that um, afterwards and, and had a, a run of pretty, pretty good results, um, decent fights, um, I think that is reason enough to, to have faith because this is a guy who I personally have written off quite a few times in my life and uh, I'm sure you guys are the same and he's come back and proved us wrong. Um, so I don't see why he can't do that again. Uh, just to ask you a question then as well, obviously there's a parallel between Rossi and someone like Tony Caroli as well. Like, How's he perceived in MXGP now? I would say there's probably less doubt about him still um, I mean, motocross is such an arduous physical sport. I mean, Cairo is in such a is still such great shape. Um, he's proved as well last season that he can still win races. Um, you know, the stats, if you compare Rossi and Cairo, are still favorably in Cairoli's favor. But yeah, you know, you're talking, there are big, big degrees of similarity. I mean, I think Cairo will be 36 uh, this year. Uh, which is pretty, pretty old for, for MHGP. Uh, nine world championships as well. I've often written that there's similarities between the both of them. In fact, the biggest thing I would say is just like a, you know, like a personal zeal for the sport. I mean, they both seem to love the scene, um, the people, uh, the emotion, um, the day-to-day that's involved in, in getting to a racetrack. I mean, that's, I don't, 
ever really detect any kind of fatigue mentally or, or physically from Cairoli, which is really surprising. Um, you see it quite heavily. You can see the the endeavours of racing wearing heavily on other riders, but it doesn't seem to be the same with him. And maybe the same for Rossi. I mean, you look at him now in the pit box and he, he looks like a 40-year-old a guy, you know, speaking as a 45-year-old guy who looks in the mirror every morning. Um, you know, That's a bit veiny, yeah? Yeah, you know, yeah, you have to, you have to suffer the mirror, don't you? But Rossi, yeah, he, 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 he's starting to look his age. And I think it's amazing that he's, he's still competitive, like Neil says, in MotoGP. I mean, he can still make a lap time. And I think it's inspiring for people like Quasararo and Oliveira that they're winning Grand Prix, you know, against the guy that they rushed to have their photo taken with when they were small, you know, barely sort of waist height kids in the paddock. So it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre phenomenon. I think, you know, we should embrace Rossi for the fact that he's still here. But, you know, and I do question his role in the Patronus team. Um, for the first time, I think he'll be asked to do stuff that he's not had to do since maybe he was a rider at Ducati in terms of promotion, in terms of getting out and shaking hands, you know, when fans and, and guests can actually come back to races. So it's going to be a, a very different kind of uh, world for him, I think, in 2021. Neil, for the move to Patronus, we didn't really see Patronus looking to lay out a red carpet for him. You know, Raslam wasn't exactly glowing in needing to have Rossi on his bike. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, Patronus, when that team came into existence, uh, Yamaha bosses and Patronus bosses stated that this was a, a kind of a team for junior riders and young talent coming through. And they're trying to create, obviously, a pathway with their Moto3 and Moto2 teams. Um, right the way up through the, the Moto GP, and I guess, um, well, you know, having a a guy that's forty one, soon to be forty two, um, in there who hasn't run a race since the middle of two thousand and seventeen, that maybe doesn't fit the, the kind of business plan. Um, but he obviously brings a lot more with that. But you could see, just in terms of how long uh, it took to get the deal over the line, um, what Quadraro and Vinales were announced at the factory Yamaha team at the end of January last year maybe the start of February, certainly before the Sepang test. And, um, and and Rossi basically said, you know, the intention is to stay with Yamaha and it's to, to go to the, the Petronas team. But we didn't have confirmation until, when was it, October? The, it was the Catalan Grand Prix where it was it was finally all announced. Um, and that was basically just an issue of personnel. Rossi wanting to bring uh, numerous people that have been with him for so long in his career with him to Petronas. And Petronas not really wanting that. And it did take quite a lot of negotiating to get that done and that that showed in itself that Rossi uh, no longer retains the, uh, the the negotiating power that he once had. I mean, Ducati did basically the, the unthinkable and, and allowed Rossi to bring his whole crew over um, with him from Yamaha in 2011 um, and that's completely against Ducati's philosophy. Um, so you compare that with now and, and, you know, Rossi's only going with a handful of, uh, a handful of faces which... I think I have to say, you know, fair play to him for being, I wouldn't say humble, but to accept that because, yeah, um, I maybe would have thought in the past that he would have thought, no, the, you know, it's either my way or the or the highway, but it looks like he's, he's acknowledged at least that he isn't the rider he once was and because of that, he can't make the demands that he once did. Guys, what, what do you reckon his motivations are? Because like Neil said, the deal took a long time to be confirmed and he was saying publicly that... He um, he wanted to see he wanted to see if he still had the desire to race and and maybe that was you know tied up with his competitiveness. Um, 
why why is he continuing do you think I mean he's not a rider and he doesn't really even need to do media interviews doesn't need to do anything about his profile certainly doesn't need the cash um, has the records has the acclaim has the profile uh, you know what is it? is it I mean is it simply the fact that after I don't know how many 25 years a quarter of a century in Grand Prix he still believes he can win I think for me it's just that he's afraid of walking away he's afraid of not having that day-to-day need to be at his best. I think he's one of those sportsmen that is afraid of what happens next. He's Valentino Rossi. He's been the biggest name in the world of motorcycle racing for pretty much all of that time as well. Ad. Like If you think back to whenever he came in in 125s, pretty much right from the start of that season, he was at the front. By the middle of that season, he was teaching the old hands a lot of different things as well. I, I remember... At like Austria was a new circuit that year. They went to as it was the A1 ring at that stage. And, you know, it was new for everyone. And Rossi was trying things that no one else was trying out on the track. So he was already going up against vastly more experienced guys and had the confidence that, no, I can do this better than they're doing it. So he had that belief from whenever he was 16. And now you fast forward to when you're 41 and he thinks that, you know what, what do I do next? And the team management and the merchandise, all those things are a nice distraction. But I think he's one of those sportsmen that's quite scared of what's the aftermath of the career. Yeah, I would totally agree with you, Steve. Um, There was a really good interview that Matt Oxley did with Danilo Petrucci a couple of years ago. And I think Petrucci has had the fortune of trading with Rossi on various occasions and maybe even spending some time with him at at the ranch and and at his house and maybe in, in Ibiza as well, where I think they go on holiday sometimes. And in this interview, I remember Petrucci saying that... um, when he would turn up at Rossi's place, like, I don't know, on a Thursday at, what, 2 p.m., like, him and some of the guys from the VR46 Academy would be grouped around the TV watching uh, 2011 Model 2 race from, you know, the Saxon Ring, or maybe it would be, like, uh, qualifying, last year's qualifying Model 3 for, I don't know, some of the guys that are in the Academy in the Model 3 class. Uh, just, it's, he strikes me as a guy that... Um, is is afraid of what comes next i think that's maybe um that's quite common with a lot of sportsmen um and there are other avenues that he has available to him but um you know while while he's still reasonably competitive um then you know i I think he sees like that this is this is still a good option to continue or carry on he has mentioned that he'll go to cars some kind of car racing after he stops bikes um, but I think he mentioned in the interview that he sees him doing that, you know, in his later 40s. So, um, yeah, I think it's something, a, a bit of a fear of the unknown. Um, and also, he's, I mean, you know, he's probably one of the guys with the, the most ridiculous self-belief that we've ever come across, certainly in MotoGP, maybe in, in all of sport. There is obviously a part of him that still thinks that he is very competitive. I think he probably acknowledges, or he would privately acknowledge, that he can't win a championship anymore. Um, but I still think there is part of him that believes that he can win races for sure. It's, um, I mean, I know it's a pointless speculating, really, because he could, could come out and win the first three races of the season. But, um, you know, if he renews his contract again and remains a Patronus rider, rider for 2022, at this stage, will we be surprised? I, th- I think I will. I would be a little bit. I wouldn't be, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on the results, of course. If he's scoring top six finishes at the at the start of this season, then I would fully expect him to sign on for another year. But um, there's there's not really any guarantee of that these days, as we've seen in the last two or three years. There have been 
more lows probably than there have been highs. Um, but no, I wouldn't be surprised just because I was surprised back in 2016 when he signed on for two more years. I thought um, 16 would definitely be his, his, his kind of last goodbye, but he just continues to to somehow find the motivation and the energy to to continue this like mad focus that he has. And um, if the results are good, I think he'll keep going until... I think he'll keep going basically until the results are so bad that he's basically left with no other option. Yeah, I think the problem with it is, is that Rossi's still better than quite a lot of riders. You know, he's not at the back of the field making a fool of himself. He's still able to be relatively competitive. Is he going to win races? That's a big challenge for him, and it's tough to see how he wins races at different times. But like Neil said, you can still get some race weekends like Catalonia where he had the good opportunity to win that race. MotoGP right now does lend itself to giving you those opportunities. May not be week in, week out like it was in the mid-2000s for Rossi. It might just be he gets two or three shots at it a year now, but he needs to take those chances. I think the one thing that would probably surprise me a lot more would be if he went out and won the first three races at I think that would be a massive shock <laughs> whereas I think him deciding to stay on would be not so much a surprise but almost inevitable as well I think what's going to be interesting for Rossi is going to be what happens with Luca Marini what happens with the VR46 team what happens with the satellite bikes down the line as well maybe that's going to be something that plays more into his mind yeah I think it's um it's going to be a season where he might not focus so much on himself you know he's going to be in a teammate with one of his is good for he's going to have a teammate as one of his best friends as his teammate uh coming from the academy as well as like his, his stepbrother in the class you know there there are going to be slightly more distractions around him other than just having his his own team neil just to finish off on rossi we're, the next topic we're going to have is going to include andrea davizioso but Davi's obviously a good point to make a comparison with because Davi's called time on his, potentially his Grand Prix career by walking away from Ducati, not having anything lined up for next year. We've already seen almost all of Rossi's rivals retire before Rossi. Does any of that play anything into it as well for Rossi where he's already seen off so many that maybe he thinks in the back of his head, you know what, I can keep going a lot longer than anyone else could even have imagined? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it hasn't made any difference to him. Um, he's seen Stoner, Pedroza, Lorenzo, Davizioso, um, all retire now, uh, in the last couple of years. And, um, and it hasn't really seemed to, to make any difference for him. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is ridiculous to think that he is still, he is still hanging around. He is still going. Um, when you look at, uh, the guys he was competing against, uh, in 2002 or three or four, um, the positions they are with their lives and careers. Um, but uh, yeah, you wonder, does that maybe give him a little bit of uh, an extra buzz, a bit of an extra motivation? It could do, perhaps. Yeah, and um, you know, we know that he's a massive fan of the support of the sport. Um, and, you know, there are still one or two records up for grabs or, you know, he can still extend one of, 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 of the records that he, that he currently possesses. So, yeah, perhaps that is uh, in its own way a little small motivation that it keeps him ticking. Well, Adam, I mentioned Davi, and that brings us to our next topic in this. One of the other questions that we got from one of our listeners was about Santi Hernandez and his comments about Andrea Davizioso. And Santi obviously is crew chief to Mark Marquez, and he said that HRC would get much more value by 
keeping Stefan Bradl on the bike if Mark is out injured rather than looking to bring in Dalvi. What was your thoughts whenever you read that? Uh, it was the, the blind and obvious, wasn't it? I mean, Stefan's sort of so deep into that project now and knows the bike and also the working culture at HRC as well as Mark Marcus's crew intimately. So it's uh, it is a bit of a no-brainer. But bringing Dobby in would have been um, would have been interesting. Uh, I think he's he's in quite a strong position by deciding to finish racing and just let himself float there unemployed, because for any kind of it's, it's almost like a bit of a approach sometimes now we see in supercross where you know after the first few races or rounds or as the season goes on there are spaces in the gate or in the paddock you know and riders they need to be filled they need to be replaced um you know dobby could come in and obviously he's physically he's still in shape um you know mentally he's on a motocross bike all the time maybe he's rediscovering a little bit of the the enthusiasm for competition or, or for honing his technique um, I think chucking him back on an HRC bike, you know, might have brought a, a different kind of, of course, it would have brought a different kind of stream or or input into the development of the motorcycle. But on the other side, maybe it was a bit too risky. Perhaps they're looking at him more as a, a racing option rather than a testing option. Neil, just to ask you about this as well, uh, before we kind of get into the ins and outs of it, what would be Santi's motivation for that as well? Because obviously, Dovey's been Mark's biggest rival for the last you know, three of the last four years. Dovey's been one of those riders that's never been afraid of the aura of Mark Marquez. Do you think could that play a factor in what Santi's saying as well? Uh, possibly, yeah. I mean, it could possibly be um, that Santi's just trying to stick up for his rider. Um, people are speculating that Mark might not be present at, uh, at the preseason tests or indeed the first couple of races. Um, you know, so much of Marquez's recovery has been shrouded in mystery and we're not really too sure um, how far along he is. Uh, there was a quite a mysterious press release the HRC uh, sent out on the 14th of January, which didn't really tell us too much. It just told us that uh, things were still quite difficult on his antibiotic treatment um, and functional recovery program. It didn't really say just how far along it is or whether they hope for him to be back at a certain time or whatever. So I think it could just be a, a case of Santi saying, you know, don't don't be thinking that Dovi could sweep in and basically take Mark's seat for a couple of races. Um, but I mean, Davizioso isn't stupid. At the same time, you would say um, neither is his manager Simone Battistella. Um, and it's clear that they've made a very um, a very considered decision in rejecting um, offers from all of the well, a lot of manufacturers to be their test rider in the hope that this could be a, a real feasible option, you have to say that. Um, and if they think that, then there must be some truth to to it, because I don't think that either Dovizioso or uh, Simone Battistella, his manager, are, are in any way stupid. I think they're both very intelligent guys who know and can read certain situations quite well. So, um, yeah, it's definitely uh, it's quite puzzling. It's quite perplexing. Um, and I'm really intrigued to see just how this plays out. Do you think, Neil, like the later it gets, the the better position Dobby's in? I mean, it's not like he would have had hundreds of laps of, well, you know, private testing, I would say, I mean, before the first race comes around. I mean, if he signed at the 11th hour as an HRC rider, you'd think, you know, he's going to be negotiating certainly a, a better price or better conditions for himself. Yeah, and I could see, you know, what, what Santi Hernandez was saying also, like Bradle wasn't doing a, 
a terrible job last year. He was doing a respectable job, I think, for a test rider. Even had a couple of good races uh, towards the end of the year, like his, his ride in um, in Portugal. I think he was the pretty much the best Honda rider that weekend. Um, and for Davizioso to come in with very limited testing on that motorcycle and to get up to that speed, um, you know, to essentially be fighting at the front, you know, it's a tall order, real tall order. Um, the only time, sorry to cut across you, but I think the only time it might look perilous turning turning away from the Davizioso option is if Paulo Spargaro really struggles to get up to speed uh, on the factory bike. And then again, HRC are relying on Stefan Bradl, largely a test rider, to you know maybe struggle to break into the top ten. I mean, it could be a, a pretty meek 2021 for the for the team and the brand. Yeah, but uh, you know, I think you know Alex Marquez is going to be. Yes, he's moved across to LCR, but he's going to be more or less on up to date equipment. He's got his contract with HRC. Um, going into his second year, I fully expect Alex to kick on from from some of the things that he achieved last year. Um, and, uh, you know, Takanakagami as well, um, sort of surprised all of us last year with, with some of the things that he could do. Plus, I think Paulus Bargro is going to do quite well on that bike. I don't think, um, we're going to see him languishing down in 13th or 14th place like we did some of the other Repsol riders last year. So, um, obviously it's concerning the situation about Mark. I think everyone is, is kind of holding their breath in some respects just to see, um, how, how things will go, how things will pan out. Um, I've seen photos on his Instagram of him going back to the gym, but he's still wearing a, a protective, almost like armor cast around his arm. So clearly um, he's still in the in the healing process, but that's what we expected. And um, what they were saying, six months would be the recovery time from the, the operation, which took place at the start of December. So yeah, I guess it could be that we don't see him for the first three races, or, or if we do see him at the first three races, he's going to be quite below uh, where we normally see him. So it's, it's difficult to say, difficult to read. Yeah, just two things there. I mean, the, the injury on Marquez, which has been talked about at length, of course, you know, is still puzzling for me. I mean, it must be quite a serious amount of damage to the bone because, you know, the, the shoulder is probably the most complicated joint in the human body. And you think, you know, if you've wrecked ligaments um, or you've, you know, uh, he's done other you know, he's had other problems with his shoulders. Um, you know, I would understand a three to six month period for, you know, uh, a full reconstruction and whatever else is needed. But for a broken bone, you think, you know, that's that could be for riding a motorcycle six to eight weeks. I mean, I know he's had various complications and now three sets of surgery, but I mean, you know, there must be a really heavy question mark from HRC and also MotoGP fans on whether that's going to run. And then just changing subject, um, I spoke last week to uh, a rider, MSGP fans will know, uh, Glenn Koldenoff, who's now a Monster Energy uh, Yamaha factory rider. He's testing in Italy at the moment. And he was riding with Dobby and also Danilo, uh, Danilo Petrucci. And, um, you know, I spoke with him a little bit last week about it. And he said that uh, Dobby was just having, you know, a whale of a time on the dirt bike. Uh, he was impressed by his technique um, and the way that he was analyzing, you know, the, the comparison between his, uh, the way, he, what he was doing on the bike, as well as Koldanov's technique. Um, I mean, Glenn said he was only seven seconds off a lap around Caballero, which is, you know, quite a renowned uh, Italian motocross uh, track. So, you know, apparently Dovi also said to him he wanted to attempt a few Italian championship motocross races this year. So it doesn't sound a lot like you know he's he's eyeing the grand prix again this year and thinking about hrc he was riding a yamaha by the way 
so it's 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 curious. But then you know who knows? We could could arrive in Qatar and then suddenly he's unveiled and you know and that number four is back on front of a Honda. Well, I think for me, one of the things that's going to be the big thing about the decisions that are going to be made is what did Bradle do last year? Now, I know Neil, you said that he had you know good races at the end of the year, but he had I think two top ten finishes last year. So it wasn't really a case of you know you were getting great results out of him. Fair enough, you were getting good data, you were getting good work because he was doing exactly what HRC wanted him to do. But you know, were you going to get a load of points from him if? Mark is out injured for a prolonged period through the course of the start of this season. You know, at the end of the day, Davi would have to come in. He'd have to learn a whole new bike, new team, new everything. But would his results be much worse than the, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th places that Bradle would probably have to be aiming for? Uh, yeah, that's that's the big question. I mean, um, I'm sure that's something that the HRC or maybe uh, trying to work out if they think that Mark isn't going to be able to make um, preseason or even even one of the, the first couple of races or maybe two or three of the first couple of races. Um, yes, yeah, it would be a big, big ask for Dovi um, to do all of those things that you just said, Steve. However, he's a rider of undotted class um, and yeah, it would be fun. It would be interesting. It would be something to throw into the mix. Um, it would be fascinating to see Dovi come out in HRC colours again and, and see him um, try and tackle with the Honda, um, you just feel that the last year and a half, maybe two years at Ducati were just so suffocating in terms of um, the uh, the tension that was present there between himself and Gigi Delinia and other figures at the factory um, that I don't think we saw Dovi anywhere near his best in the last couple of years. And I'm sure getting out of that kind of suffocating atmosphere um, gives you a bit of freedom and a bit of bit of a smile and a bit more of a, a strut um as adam mentioned when he was uh he was training with motocross so yeah I, I mean i think we would all love to see it right but um for him to jump on the bike and, and be top five top six i think is a massive ask from the very start because we know everyone says it the hrc the honda is not the easiest bike to get on board with uh from the start it's too risky for hrc as well isn't it i mean that's very kind of uh spontaneous and interesting and lively uh it'll be uh you know shocking to see that happen yeah i think it's like neil said it's one of those things we'd all love to see but whether it comes to pass is a very different situation we're going to take a break on the paddock pass podcast and when we come back we've got another couple of questions in from some of our listeners fly racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. And uh, we've got another couple of questions, Neil, from some of our listeners. One of them is about Suzuki and what happens with Suzuki next now that Davide Brivio has left the team. What's their succession plan? Uh, it seems as though their succession plan is to look within and perhaps to do a little bit of reorganizing and uh, possibly promote uh, someone within um, or even to maintain their current structure 
just without Brivio and maybe give a few extra duties to some of the figures there. Um, we know that, I mean, you know, Suzuki was um, obviously extremely successful last year. It had a really good thing going, um, good atmosphere, um, and some really skilled people working at the front of that project. I mean, their project leader, Shinichi Shahara, um, since he came in through the midway through 2017, um, has basically got that project back on course after it went briefly off the rails with uh, Andrea Iannone in that uh, kind of doomed first season for the Italian. Um, and Ken Kawuchi, um, another uh, lauded uh, technical figure from the Suzuki factory, um, has also, um, you know, been, he's been talked up for his ability to, to, basically fine-tune the bike and to, to continue to build from a position of strength from the past couple of years. And you just wonder whether someone like Sahara, who's the, the project leader, whether he might take on a, a few more of, of Brivio's responsibilities. Um, Suzuki have been quite vague um, with regards to the specifics of how they're going to do this, but Sahara has basically said that they're going to look within. Um, they don't foresee them making a headline-grabbing um, signing in the, in the form of, I don't know, Livio Supo or one or two other names that were potentially um, discussed at the time. So uh, I think for the time being, it's, uh, it's not a bad decision because, as I said, Suzuki are in a good position. Um, both of their riders are signed up to the end of, un until the end of 2022. Um, and... Uh, you know, they, they've got a good bike. They've got two good riders that can fight for the championship this year. You know, things aren't desperate. You know, they're not coming off a really tough season. So um, perhaps rather than rocking the boat a little bit and, and picking someone or or trying to have to, to break the bank to, to get someone in, um, it looks as though they're just going to try and continue going forward with what they've got um, with a few slight changes here and there. I mean, I know you kind of partially answered that, Neil, but do you think, you know... Um they will eventually need someone. I mean, Brivio came in with a brief to set up the team and his contacts and, and, and profile again in that world was a huge advantage in terms of not just hiring the staff, but also creating a bit of a team ethos. Um, I, I, my reaction is I think they do need somebody, somebody uh, like, you, you know, like a public face, um, like you've been blogging about recently, somebody who can stand in front of cameras and explain um, some of the inner workings or justifications or excuses even for the factory team. I mean, if Juan Mir has a, a very poor season next year, I would like to see how Suzuki are going to deal with the whole machine of explaining or revealing, you know, the reasons for that. Yeah, and that's why I think, you know, Brivio will be a big loss eventually. We'll, we will see that because... Um, he had so many strings to his bow. He was a, a fantastic communicator. Um, he was apparently uh, very good at bridging that kind of gap from the racetrack to the, the factory. He was very good at explaining to the Japanese engineers just what was needed. Um, he had a real eye for talent and, and long-term thinking. You just have to look at how um, the rider signings for Suzuki have been since they came back in in 2015. They've pretty much been, maybe with the exception of Iannone, two men very 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 good appointments um and uh, you know i don't think we maybe see that too much but um he can be quite ruthless when he wants to be i heard some things the year that Ianoni was having real difficulties back in 17 and and i think you know um brivio wasn't afraid to speak his mind to the italian when he was being difficult we all knew that Ianoni was being a, a very difficult figure that year um 
And you think also back to the start of 2019 when Ducati had their aerodynamic spoon, there was that whole controversy. Brivio was one of the, the most outspoken critics of not just Ducati and, and Gigi Delinia's, um insistence on, on continuing to um, basically push the rules to the absolute limit, but also very critical of um, of, of the safety, um, sorry, not the safety, of the technical director and, and Dorna, basically, for how they handled that. So it could be quite quite spiky and quite ruthless when he needed to be. And um, yeah, they're, they're really big shoes to fill. Um, because if things do start to go wrong this year, um, you do wonder whether whoever basically takes on his responsibilities will have the the skill set to deal with with these kind of things the way he did. Adam, just to ask you a question then about Suzuki and what we've seen particularly over the last year, do you think did COVID play a big role in them being able to win the championship? And was it just a little bit of an outlier compared to what we can expect going forward? Like when you look at a lot of other sports, we've seen lots of strange results, lots of strange things happening, whether it's in football or anything else, where we've seen a big impact in how teams have had to prepare, how you know people have been able to stay fit and things like that. Do you think that that play a role in Suzuki winning the championship and maybe it's going to give us an unrealistic expectation for whoever comes in to replace Brivio or for just whatever happens to Suzuki over the next couple of years? Ultimately, it's hard to put such a, a finger on one reason why. I mean, as we've discussed in the past couple of shows, especially with, you know, Joan Mir coming through to win the championship, um, I think Suzuki had the right technical package at the right time with the right intensity of the races. But then also you have to look around the rest of the grid, you know, that technical package that worked so well for the Japanese didn't really work so well for the Ducati or it was harder for them. Uh, Yamaha had their own problems. Uh, KTM surged up to the point where, you know, they had their best ever season, but probably weren't quite ready to be championship material. I mean, Paul Spargaro certainly probably wasn't in the right place mentally to, to achieve those kind of results. So they, they managed the consistency, I think by being, you know, the, the smallest factory team, uh, you know, aside with the prettier, and just uh, having, you know, the right philosophy, which Neil says established from a figurehead like David Ibrivio. Um, I mean, to answer your question, Steve, they it was the right team in the right place for the right weird championship that we had. Um, you know, obviously, Juan Mir won the championship and then had a very poor final race in Porto Mau. It would have been interesting if that wasn't the final round. Um, if we had had a full-length MotoGP series last year, you know, who knows? Um, I wouldn't go into two into two, well into this year saying right Suzuki are one hundred percent firm favourites. I mean I think it's going to be a very difficult season again and losing their the guy who's been you know calling all the shots for the last five years is is a big thing. And Neil, for you obviously over the course of the last few years, you've had to work day in day out with people like Brivio. You're down to talk to teams. You're down to talk to team managers. What was he like to deal with for you over the course of the last four or five years? Um, very, very pleasant. Um, I think anyone that has seen him in TV interviews um, will have seen a, a happy, um, approachable, uh, funny, um, but also very intelligent and, and very reasonable uh, guy. And that's what I find him to be. I'm sure you guys are the same whenever you dealt with him, but I can't really think of many people that would have uh, that much bad to say about Brivio. And, and certainly hearing some stories from people that have worked um, at Suzuki um, and just stories that you kind of hear around the paddock of, of some of the things that he's done to to make sure that 
everyone there is happy and feels like it's a it's a family. He was fantastic at creating that uh, very close atmosphere where everyone was, you know, looking at the same page and, and basically in line with each other. Um, and yeah, um, he was uh, yeah. I think he will be he'll be he'll be missed as well. You know, because he was always yeah always very pleasant. And the fact that I was quite surprised actually to read that he was a a motorcycle journalist uh, before he got into uh, the team manager thing so perhaps that's why he was nice to us because not, ev- <laughs> not everyone is he knows how difficult it is to uh, to knock on the old uh, the old door of the the factory truck um asking if he if he has five minutes or whatever but no i always find him very um, very approachable and um yeah very professional I have to I have to agree with that. I mean, the times I've spoken with him, uh, he was not only a very open individual, but also like a very pleasant one. Um, you know, he, he never he always seemed to have time to speak to you, which, you know, it just it deserves uh, credit in itself when you contrast it against some of the other, you know, head of factories or head of teams, whatever else you find in MotoGP. Not everybody is like that. Um, he was obviously a busy guy, an important guy uh, with a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. So, um, you know, for for the media side, I think it's a, it's going to be a miss as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he fares as well. A very different challenge going into Formula One for him. But Neil, one of the key things that we saw part of Suzuki's success was what they were able to do with their test team, and this was. The last question that we got in just related to what we were going to cover over the course of the show was the growing importance of those test teams, whether it's Suzuki with a former world champion in world superbikes like Sylvain Gentoli, Stefan Bradl, of course, a former Moto2 world champion for Honda, Cal Crutchlow, a Supersport world champion, now being the Yamaha test rider, Ducati's obviously got uh, Michele Pirro as well, and then you look at KTM and they've just got a whole host of different riders to be their test riders, of course, including the likes of uh, Danny Pedrosa. Aprilia has obviously been linked with a couple of different riders as well for their role, but uh, we saw last year that uh, you know Bradley Smith, Lorenzo Salvadori, both of them were uh, obviously on the uh, on the race bikes as well last year. So that role of test rider and that uh, test team has become ever more important in MotoGP. It has indeed. Yes, um, I think Michele Pirro was probably the uh, the first one that that emphasised just what gains you could have from having a, a very very strong test rider and test team around them. And indeed, I mean, it's become a common thing now. You mentioned all of the the factories having pretty solid professional setups. Um, almost, they're they're basically a different part of the race team. You know, it's not just the the the, the race engineers that work for Mark Marquez go to the test track with Stefan Bradl. No, Stefan Bradl now has his own separate team working around him away from the track and it's the same with uh, with all the guys. And I think Piro was the one that, that started that with Ducati. Um, you could see um, just the kind of, uh, well, what he brought them. I mean, he was, he was a Moto2 race winner um, and anytime that he's come into MotoGP, he's never looked out of his depth. He's, he's shown himself capable of, of strong top 10 finishes um, on occasion. And uh, I think that's just now the common thing. You know, you have the, all the names that you mentioned, Steve, on their day, they are top 10 MotoGP riders, if not better. You know, maybe on their day, podium um, finishes a MotoGP with someone like Kyle Crutchlow at Yamaha. So, yeah, it's it's absolutely integral now. Um, and maybe it wasn't so much the case five years ago, but all of the teams and all of the factories have realized that that is an integral part of being a presence on the MotoGP grid now. Add, of course, it's nothing new to see this kind of importance with the test team. Even if you think back to when MotoGP first went four-stroke, 
Obviously, you were at Suzuka in 2002, but we saw that the Japanese test riders were all at the front of the field. We saw that there was a big investment that was made in Japan at that stage, whereas now it's all been European-based. What's the advantage for the teams now to have that European base? Um, a huge advantage, Steve. I mean, it's also another rung on the ladder. And I was actually in Suzuki in 01. That was the, the famous Rossi middle finger. Yes, what was I was saying, European test teams. Uh, it's interesting, actually, because I did an interview in the magazine this month with um, Andrea Bergami, who's, uh, you know, the Brembo engineer, just one of two, actually. And um, Brembo have the whole MotoGP grid when it comes to their braking systems. And he was saying that when those guys get new technology or things to test uh, it's usually the europeans the european manufacturers are faster to get the new material through to the to the factory riders because the japanese prefer to take it use it with their japanese test teams and riders in japan where they'll analyze it and evaluate it then move it onto their european based test teams and then finally get it to the likes of Mark Marcus, for example. So it's going to be tested by someone in Japan, then say Stefan Bradl, and then Marcus will get the new brake material. Um, whereas somebody like KTM will take it immediately. Maybe Danny Pedrosa will give it a few laps here, say it's fine, give it the thumbs up, and it goes straight onto Brad Binder's bike. You know, I mean, we, we've commented before that the Europeans can be very quick with their development cycles. But, uh, you know, I think for the Japanese, having the European, and like Neil said, the caliber of rider as well, who can just step in if there are injury problems. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Cal Crutchlow racing again this year. Um, you know, it's, it's a tremendous asset. And uh, just to go off topic ever so slightly, you mentioned Suzuka 2001. What was more memorable for you? Was it the Rossi middle finger or was it the, the hangover on Monday morning? <laughs> yeah, from the, uh, the, the log cabin. It's, it's pretty dangerous. All I would say is Japanese beer just seems to be drier and it just leads to more dehydration and more pain. <laughs> and considering I was flying straight to the Australian motocross Grand Prix from there, it was not a pleasant flight. So, but enough of that, Neil. I, I was going to say you should really just blame it on, on Gav Emmett and Matt Roberts. They were clearly leading you astray, Ad. <laughs> and Jeremy McWilliams as well. Uh, I'll point the finger at him. Oh, well, as long as there's enough blame to go around, that's all that matters. This sounds completely out of character for, for all of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> those were the main topics that uh, we uh, we actually got any feedback on that uh, listeners were looking to get some questions answered on. But obviously enough, you can keep sending in questions to at Paddock Pass Pod or to any of our, ourselves individually. Adam, just before we finish up this week's show, obviously we've had the first triple header of the Supercross season. And uh, seeing as we did a Supercross season preview, why don't you bring everyone up to speed on what we've seen in the first three rounds? Uh, it's been fantastic. If you can find somewhere to watch Supercross, whether it's on YouTube or through the streaming package that uh, Feld have lined up online, which is actually pretty good value, then go and watch it. I mean, there's been three races in Houston, three different winners, eight different riders from nine on the podium. It's been a real mixed bag. Some controversy as well with uh, Ken Rotson and Dean Wilson on the last lap. Um, Roxham was basically held up and Cooper Webb stormed through for his first victory. So it's it's all hot, you know, so it's all bubbling up nicely. Uh, I think Texas is the, if my memory fails, is, is uh, serves me correctly, will be the next round uh, this coming week. So it's, um, yeah, no, no big injury news yet, which is, which is great. Um, and yeah, just a, a hell of a lot of parity. Yeah, your memory did fail you. Texas was last week. It's Indianapolis this week, Ed. But for um, Dean Wilson, though, we saw that last lap instant. And obviously, Cooper Webb was really closing in hard on Ken Roxham. He was half a second a lap faster than him at those final couple of laps. But uh, Wilson gets himself caught out there, didn't see the blue flags, 
And, uh, you know, it's the old story of if there's blue flags out, there's a race going on, chances are you're not in it. And he ended up being right in the middle of that race. I have a degree of sympathy for Wilson. Um, you know, especially as the the sighting of the flaggers in Supercross has been a topic up for debate in the last couple of years. And I think post-race, there's been a bit of a mountain made out of a molehill. I mean, for sure, Ken Roxon was frustrated at losing more points. But it, it was very much something you see a lot in racing. Um, you know, whether it's, okay, it was for the win, so it's pretty high profile. But, it, you know, it's the sort of thing that can happen for a fifth, sixth or seventh, you know, position every other week. Um, and, of course, you know, for Roxon, it was big to get the, those full points for his championship bid. But for the guy who maybe lost sixth place, you know, that could have been money or, you know, uh, something related to his own his own story. So it's, uh, I think it was... You know, something that got people talking about what happened, which is always good. Uh, but I do have some sympathy for Dean because uh, he's you know, he's a, a fine professional and certainly not like one of those riders where you think, well, that was deliberate. Yeah, well, of course, only a few days earlier, Roxon didn't see the flags as well. Ad, and uh, he ended up losing four points as a penalty for that. It's really interesting that there's, um, you know, the FIM have homologated the the recent light system. Um, I mean, I haven't read the full press release, but I saw the image, you know, from the setup at Assen uh, for use on on Grand Prix tracks. Um, there, there is, from memory, a, like a loose light system in Supercross. Um, but you know, you know, with the jumps and the way those tracks are so condensed, I think flagging is a real problem. And now. You know, the AMA and Feld rightly don't want the flaggers anywhere near the track where they could become involved in an accident. So that, that does limit your potential for for making sure the riders know when they've got their head down and they're coming straight out of a turn into, say, like a, a timing section, a double into a triple or whatever, then it's, you know, it's going to be hard to really let them know. Yeah, and we did see that as well in the 250s as well, because the risk that you have for any of the flag workers or safety crew is that a bike can easily go off the track and we saw one bike end up in the catch fencing so it is a case of you can't really have them too close to the track and putting them in harm's way but they do need to have some way of being able to signal yeah it's again it's a situation of no real clear-cut answer i mean it's the same for the critics of the tracks some riders think the tracks are too easy some would, would like to see you know a much harder level of, of, of technical challenge there but um yeah it's, 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 a, it's a hard one to crack steve just you mentioned the tracks as well. I just one last question about the Supercross openers. We saw obviously three different layouts for the three races in Houston, but we saw the first layout was a very short track and it ended up, I think, did 29 or 30 laps in the mains. So the track really did just tear itself up. Then in the second Houston, we saw the sand section caught out a lot of riders. And then Houston three, we saw a much more open race, a much more open track. And that's where we got to see the best racing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you nailed on the head a great summary there. Uh, and again, the pressure's on the, the technical team, Dirtworks, to make sure there is enough uh, variety across those triple headers. But uh, it'll be fascinating as the, as the series moves a little bit around the US and the different types of dirt that come up. Um, incidentally, you know, a place like Anaheim 1 um, failed group all the dirt together, put it into a huge container that the likes you sort of see on tanker ships and then essentially close the door and leave it there for a year. And then they pull it back out and then shovel it into the stadium to make the next year's events tracks. That's how it works. So the dirt is something that can vary over time. Of course, it's uh, dirt is not so easy to work with. It's not tarmac, put it that way, which is also something that uh, proves can be quite inconsistent. 
yeah, I remember whenever I was working in Super Enduro, I was talking to Taddy Blasuziak about it. And Taddy was explaining that there's different dirt used, obviously, at different tracks through the course of the season. There was some dirt that he really liked. It could be a little bit drier than other places. And how long it had been there was the big deciding factor for it as well. And it was really that that was able to generate the grip for the riders. And it's the same, obviously, for the Supercross riders, too. But uh, it'd be interesting to see what's going to happen now at Indianapolis in the next couple of rounds as well. And for you, obviously, the next couple of weeks, what's the plan? <laughs> well, uh, being limited really to... Um, actually, I have an update. Um, maybe we can talk about it on the next show or in the next couple of weeks, but I'll be off to Gran Canaria next week uh, to test the new KTM 1290 Super Adventure S, uh, which, you know, is going to be a bit of a BMW GS pounding motorcycle in that segment. So I'll be riding around that island for a day, uh, just doing a bit of a test of that bike. So maybe I can give a bit of an update when I'm next on the show. I tell you what, Neil, don't you hate these influencers that get to go out to the sunny climbs and uh, try and uh, just bring joy to everyone and motivate them to uh, see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. What's your plan for the next two weeks or the next week of just staying inside your apartment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sitting in watching uh, watching movies and uh, writing writing reports is uh, isn't quite comparable to what Adam just said, but um, yeah, just uh, gradually picking up Steve a bit of intensity uh, with regards to the season. Going to start working on some notes and, and some preparation for the year ahead. Um, and um, yeah, it's basically January's been quite free apart from the, the podcast and, and one or two little bits and bobs. It's been generally fairly chilled. Um, and yeah, I've just been taking advantage of that because once we get underway and we're in the thick of it, you know, free time is uh, is a real. Is a real premium you don't get so much of it so um yeah next week or two just uh, pick up a little bit of intensity with uh, with regards to interviews which hopefully we can bring to the uh, the panic pass podcast listeners and uh, some of the readers of uh, of the publications we work for as well steve you're sitting in a room with two electric guitars on the wall behind you so by mid-season you know which considering the fact the season could be delayed is quite some time I want you to have wiped a layer of dust off those guitars and, and to play something for us. I think that's got to be, you know, a, a, an achievable objective. To be honest, it's the one that's underneath that uh, gets the action, that uh, classic guitar. <laughs> but there's a bass here as well. There's another guitar. I think I've got six in the room here, Ad. So there, there is always uh, one of them gathering dust. It tends to actually be the electrics. I use use the acoustics mostly. So they're uh, they're getting fair fair bit of action now at this stage. Neil's got his drumsticks as well. We've got a bit of a band going here. Exactly, yeah. I was just about to say that uh, one of the one of the kind of passions in my previous life, back when I was a teenager or something, was uh, was the drums. And uh, yeah, my kind my kind girlfriend uh, got me some drum lessons for uh, for Christmas. So uh, I've been back at that for a little bit. So Steve, if you want to get a little uh, little jam going over Zoom. Um, that could be that could be something that could be a Patreon show that we put out for the listeners. At the, ver the, the very, I fuck, at I the very least, hate uh, Zoom, Neil, we're not doing it on Zoom. <laughs> at the very least, Neil, you could eat your sushi with something, so you're all right. <laughs> well, it's it's probably worth remembering as well. David Emmett, of course, was a bass player in a previous life, and uh, it's going to be good when we get the band fully fully back together with David back on the Paddock Pass podcast as well. So, a big thank you to Adam Wheeler for joining us on today's show. Thanks, Steve. Good to talk. Big thank you to Neil Morrison for joining us on today's show as well. And a big thank you to everyone for listening to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. And uh, be sure to leave a comment, be sure to rate the show and uh, drop us a tweet at Paddock Pass Pod 
or you can also go to patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and for as little as three dollars a month support the podcast this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.